0: Hi, everyone. I have great news. Building Belonging now has its very own podcast feed. If you want to hear more, find us wherever you listen to podcasts and
1: subscribe. Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. In this episode, The Legal Accountability Project. Tanya, Angie, and Mary Ellen speak with Elisa Schatzman, president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project.
2: My negative clerkship experience is not rare, but it is one that is rarely shared publicly due to the culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks.
1: Experiencing harassment and retaliation after she tried to speak up, Elisa started the Legal Accountability Project to give law clerks the same tools and protections guaranteed to any other worker.
2: Judges are managers running a small workplace like any other, which also necessitates they should be subject to the same workplace laws like Title VII, and their employees should be protected by those laws like other workplaces.
1: Elisa helped us understand just how deeply entrenched the status quo is, and spoke about how the Legal Accountability Project is trying to raise awareness and build the tools to hold judges accountable for their actions in the workplace.
2: It's about conveying that the right thing to do is also good business, because it encourages more students to clerk, it improves the profession, it makes for engaged and happy alums who continue to practice law.
1: Opinions expressed by those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Tanya martinez Galanucci.
0: Welcome back to Building Belonging. Today, we are engaging with Elisa Schatzman, who's going to introduce herself in a bit. And I just wanted to, right at the top of the episode, just talk about how important this conversation we're about to have really is. I don't know anyone else in the industry talking about these issues, the way Elisa's doing it. And we are so blessed and honored to have her here. Because I couldn't think of a better time either, (laughs) given what has happened in our country, the decisions that have just come down, and where we're at as a society thinking about bias and prejudice and the ways that they infiltrate our lives and our opportunities. So with that, I am Tanya Martinez Galanucci. I'm the executive director of the office, and I'm handing it over to my team.
3: Hello, hello. I am Angie avila Lanciati. I am the manager of development and communications with the office.
4: And I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa, and I'm the senior diversity coordinator for OD. I'm going to hand it over to our guests today. If you could just introduce yourself
2: and tell us, what does belonging mean to you? I'm Aliza Schatzman. I'm the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project, which is a nonprofit aimed at ensuring that law clerks have positive clerkships while extending support and resources to the ones who don't. And thanks for having me on the podcast. This is, I think, the best DEIB podcast I've encountered, so I always learn a lot. What does belonging mean to me? So I spend a lot of time speaking with and thinking about judges and law clerks. To me, belonging means being able to bring your full self to work, even and especially to a judicial chambers. What I see a lot is really strict expectations for what a law clerk should be and also what a judge should be. And a lot of law clerks, new attorneys hiding who they really are in the workplace. And so I really seek to combat those stereotypes and those expectations in my work. Thank you, Lisa. So let's go back. Let's start at the beginning. Why did you pursue law school and what was your trajectory like? I went to law school because I wanted to be a reproductive rights litigator. I wanted to be a trial attorney at Planned Parenthood. I was an undergrad at Williams College and I did internships at Planned Parenthood and the National Women's Law Center. I was just really galvanized by the personal experiences I learned about. I went to WashU Law thinking that I wanted to pursue public interest litigation. Got the trial attorney bug and decided I wanted to become a prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So I did four different internships at the Justice Department to get a breadth of criminal law experience and then decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term in the jurisdiction where I aspired to practice law. I have another question I'm supposed to ask you, but
0: every time I hear this, like your trajectory, I am so fascinated by it because- you had like an end goal in mind and you had an idea about what your trajectory needed to be to get there. And I was just wondering if you can pull back the curtain a little bit and tell folks about that, like why you knew or how you found out that this was the way to get where you wanted to go. And then I promise I'll ask the real question. <laughs> no, it's such a
2: good question because some people come into law school With a lot of advantages, and you know, family members who are attorneys, perhaps they're judges, they know what a clerkship is, they know how to get to the next goal. And others, particularly historically marginalized groups and first gen students, really just don't. And you need to know about all the things in order to get to the next step. I mean, I have some attorneys in my family, and I definitely came into law school with a lot of benefits, but then I was also always been a really focused and career oriented person. So I kind of knew that my 1L internship was important, and that would lead to a 2L internship and on from there. I was very intentional about pursuing internships during 2L spring and 3L fall. I saw those as like additional work experience opportunities, and I knew that I needed to be on a journal. So I was an editor for the Journal of Law and Policy. And then I connected with professors who I thought would be good mentors and kind of cynically who would be good references for a clerkship. But some people don't come into law school with those advantages. And when there's a real lack of transparency and lack of information, they continue to be disadvantaged.
0: So glad I asked that other
2: question. (laughs) Okay,
0: so here's the real question I'm supposed to ask you. How did the Legal Accountability Project come to be? And this is what we're all here for, really.
2: Such a big question. I went to WashU Law, realized that I should clerk because I wanted to be a trial attorney. For anyone listening who doesn't know what a clerkship is, it's when new attorneys, typically fresh out of law school, maybe with a couple years' work experience, spend a year or two working closely with and learning from a judge. The messaging around clerkships in the legal community, particularly on law school campuses, is just uniformly positive. This will be a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship. This position will confer only professional benefits. Really, nobody ever talks about the potential downsides of clerking, the enormous power disparity between fresh out of law school clerks in their first legal job and powerful, often life-tenured judges, the most powerful members of our profession, that makes it difficult to speak out against mistreatment, the enormous power judges have over their former clerks' lives and careers, the lack of workplace protections, including Title VII protections afforded to clerks. And the real lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks. None of this stuff was discussed when I was applying for clerkships. I was told to apply broadly, meaning across the U.S. and across the political spectrum, and to accept the first clerkship I was offered. So I did all those things. And I started clerking in D.C. Superior Court in August 2019, ready to kind of launch my career as a prosecutor. And beginning just weeks into the clerkship, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was bossy, aggressive, nasty, that I had personality issues. The day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam. So big day in my life. He called me into his chambers, got in my face, and said, You're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And I just remember being devastated. I mean, crying myself to sleep at night, crying on the walk to work in the morning. This was my first job out of law school. This judge just seemed to be singling me out for mistreatment. I confided in some attorney mentors who advised me to stick it out. So I tried and I knew that I needed a year of work experience to be eligible for my next job. So during the pandemic, March, 2020, I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and worked remotely. And the judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up in late April of 2020 and told me that he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him. And then he hung up on me. I reached out to DC Courts HR, trying to use the reporting channels I thought existed. And they told me there was nothing they could do, that HR doesn't regulate judges, that judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. Then they asked me whether I knew that I was an at-will employee. Then I reached out to my law school, WashU Law, seeking, I don't know, advice, support, found out this judge had a history of harassing his clerks, that law school officials, including several professors, and our clerkships director, who still works at WashU, knew about at the time I'd accepted the clerkship, decided not to share that information with me because they wanted another WashU student to clerk. So it took me about a year to get back on my feet, secured my dream job in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, moved back to D.C., hoping to put this behind me. And I was two weeks into training at the USIO in July, 2021. I'd already started working there when I received some really devastating news that altered the course of my life. I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. I remember crying on the phone with USAO leadership, DC courts leadership. They wouldn't tell me what the judge had said. They said the decision was final. So I filed a judicial complaint, hired attorneys, and participated in the investigation into the now former judge. We were partway through that investigation when I found out he was on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct at the time he filed a negative reference about me. The USAO was not alerted to those circumstances. And then pursuant to the terms of our private settlement, so separate from anything the judiciary can or would do for a law clerk... In January, he issued a clarifying statement addressing some of his outrageous claims about me, but by then the damage had been done and I was blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. And I'm gonna get to the circumstances that led me to launch the nonprofit, but in my role at the nonprofit, I share my experience a lot. And what I always seek to underscore is this, my negative clerkship experience is not rare, but it is one that is rarely shared publicly Due to the culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. And while I was involved in the judicial complaint process in the summer of 2021, I became aware of the Judiciary Accountability Act. That's proposed legislation that would extend Title VII protections to law clerks. Currently, folks like me with experiences like mine cannot sue our harassers and seek damages for harms done to our lives. So a House Judiciary hearing happened on that bill in March 2022, for which I submitted written testimony sharing my experience and advocating for the legislation. And in the weeks following that, the response was really positive. And so I began to throw around some ideas to further this advocacy work, to increase transparency, diversity, and accountability in judicial clerkships and the judiciary, which eventually led me to launch a nonprofit to correct injustices I personally experienced as a law student and law clerk. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us and for all the work you do.
0: And I don't want to not call out some of the really important dynamics at play right now, even, right? Like you are still being brave. You are still (laughs) amplifying your story. And I'm sure you don't always get... This story received with open arms. I'm I without knowing a thing about how many times you've told the story or who you've told it to, I would bet good money that there are a lot of people who will try to silence you, try to explain away the behaviors that you've experienced, minimize them, justify them. And I'm sure it's no surprise to you why I might <laughs> know these things without even having been there. But I do think it's important. For us, especially those of us who are actually in the profession, that we made it through, through hell or high water, here we are. Because what are we doing if we're not holding ourselves accountable as an industry? What are we doing if we're partaking in this system that continues to do this. And so thank you so much. I think the industry owes you a huge debt, frankly. But this is its so great to have you here, despite the circumstances. And we're just so thankful that you are here sharing these stories. And I'll let Ellen get the next question. But I just couldn't move on to the next question without acknowledging just how strong and brave you are. And I wish you didn't have to be. I
2: wish you didn't have to be this brave. I mean, I think the biggest boulder I push up a hill and it's improving is getting more law clerks to share their own experiences. And we're going to talk about some of the things I'm doing with our clerkships database and like internal information sharing. But the response to me sharing my experience is generally positive, though I write and speak a lot about these issues. And my general policy is if I'm not going to share my experience, I want people to link to my house judiciary testimony because I've seen in the one or two instances where we don't. That's when we got some like white males saying, well, oh, it probably just wasn't that bad and whatever they're going to say. But it's about conveying that my experience is not rare and that for every law clerk who speaks publicly, so many suffer in silence. And so it's about empowering them to share their experiences, recognizing that as a legal community, we have no protections against reputational harm, no protections against retaliation. Odive is no stranger to
4: difficult conversations, as I'm sure you're not either. And so we were wondering, what are some of the most challenging conversations that you've had to have since starting this work? And what
2: do those sound like? This is a great question. So my nonprofit works with law schools to increase transparency and diversity in the clerkship application process. Before we launched, I began having initial conversations with a couple dozen law school deans and clerkship directors about the resources they use to help provide students with information about judges before they apply for clerkships. And spoiler alert, regardless of a law school's ranking or resources, whether you are a T5 or a regional school, there is no information about judges who mistreat their clerks that is accessible to students. So some law schools do a better job than others. The most challenging conversations I have are with some clerkship directors and deans who say really outrageous things to me, like, we're blessed to work with only good judges. All our alums have a positive experience. And harassment isn't happening. It's just women adjusting to their first jobs. And it's our official law school policy that we don't warn students about judges who mistreat their clerks. That's from my law school, WashU. They are the most challenging But these are all statements made by women. I think that at this point, when you are not empowering students to seek accountability and transparency, when you are not empowering clerks to stand up for themselves, you are disempowering them. I take these statements so personally. I mean, it's disheartening that law students are going to go another year without transparency and DEI resources because their law schools are so challenging. But it's also just such a slap in the face to hear these clerkship directors, the things they say about their students and their clerks saying, oh, she had a negative experience, but she was just embellishing it because she wanted to leave her clerkship early. had a couple clerkships directors telling students that I want to abolish clerkships, all kinds of crazy stuff. The conversations are really challenging. And at most of those places, we've subsequently made progress. But I find those to be quite emotionally taxing. I obviously engage in a lot of emotionally taxing work, but I find those to be the most challenging. But I also spend a lot of time speaking with law clerks who reach out to me. I think they perceive me as a trusted source because I've been there. And when law clerks tell me over and over that they've had these negative experiences, but they're not going to share them, when they're not going to report, when they're not even going to share with their law school and other clerks, I find those really hard too. And I always try to like, keep my cool in those conversations, because everybody is somewhere different when they reach out to me. But at the end of the day, anybody who is not engaging in information sharing is really perpetuating problematic behaviors. So every conversation I have is challenging, though. (laughs) I mean, say that
0: part louder for the people in the back. It's such a challenge in this work. I mean, DIB work in general, like just getting people to speak up and speak out about it for all the reasons you just mentioned. I think there's a lot of normalizing. I can't tell you how many times even here we'll talk about, you know, a racist email we got or someone saying something crazy and people look at me and go, but that's not our members. Our members are so great. Our members, that's just a
2: bad apple. Oh, I hate that message. That is the worst. Or it's like, oh, he didn't mean it. Or yeah. He didn't mean that you're just
0: here because of the Me Too movement, because you're a woman. He just doesn't understand. Girl, bye. Like, get out of here. We have such different tolerances for the stuff that we will accept out of white men's mouths versus mine. People are always telling me to shut up. I'm like, damn, if people just took half of my shut-ups and put them elsewhere, we could be moving (laughs) so much faster. (laughs) No, I appreciate you. And I think to your earlier point, we can't deny the power dynamics at play here. There really is this godlike treatment of the judiciary would you mind elaborating a little bit more on that? Because I, I don't know that everyone
2: understands what we're talking about. It is pervasive, the deification of judges. And it starts on law school campuses, 1L Fall. It is everything about the way we talk about clerkships and the way we refer to judges as your honor. How about just judge or justice? How about just their name, It is the way we message that judges deserve absolute respect and total deference. It is the clerkships programming on these law school campuses, bringing back clerks to talk about their uniformly positive experiences, bringing in judges to create relationships and funnels from these law school campuses to the judiciary. It is sweeping mistreatment under the rug. It is telling law clerks that you should never say anything negative about a judge. And then some of these clerkship directors actively dissuading law clerks from saying anything negative on a post-clerkship survey, we've got at least one law school where their post-clerkship survey says, if you were harassed, don't fill this out. Contact the dean instead. And several clerkship directors I know have said to law clerks, don't put that in writing. So that, that is some of the stuff I encounter.
0: <laughs> I mean, this is what makes our industry that much more dangerous. Yep. <laughs> right? Because we understand how the legal system works. We understand how evidence is, we know what discovery is. And we plan for it, for better or for worse. I mean, I put everything in writing. Mm. But I do highly suggest anyone listening to this, continue documenting, (laughs) document
3: it all. All right, I'm going to hand it over to Angie. Thank you. So When you shared your story, something stuck out to me. Well, a lot stuck out to me. But one thing in particular, when the judge dismissed you, he said something along the lines of you lacking respect. So recently, I just watched the movie Women Talking. If you haven't seen it, I highly suggest to watch the movie. It's great. So the movie itself got me thinking about the difference between obedience and respect. And I think these people in power. They hide behind the word respect when what they really mean is when they say you are disrespectful, you don't show respect. What they really mean is you're not obedient. So when you shared the story of the judge using your lack of respect as a reason for dismissing you, I think what he really wanted to say was your lack of obedience Right. And that's
2: something that really
3: stuck out. I me. think it's
2: also a statement about expectations for women in the workplace, particularly, but certainly not exclusively in a judicial chambers. Like, I am clearly an assertive person. And I think that is part of it, too. It's not conforming to gendered expectations about women's roles in the workplace. But those traits, what you just talked about, obedience or submissiveness, like, you cannot advance in our very male-dominated legal profession if you are not assertive. So it is, of course, a double standard. How
3: can current law clerks or up-and-coming law clerks facing and experiencing mistreatment, what can they do to get help?
2: So if you are a current law clerk experiencing mistreatment, it depends on your courthouse. If you are a state clerk, you can go to HR, you can go to a Judicial Conduct Commission to file a complaint, But the first thing you should do is confide in someone, clerks, another judge you trust, someone else in the courthouse, potentially speak with an attorney. I mean, the first step is to get yourself out of the negative work environment, whether that means a transfer to another judge, which is challenging, or just leaving your job early. I encounter a lot of clerks trying to leave their clerkships, trying to find another job. If you are a federal clerk, You are not protected by Title VII, but you do have Employee Dispute Resolution, or EDR. That's the internal workplace resolution process by which you could file a complaint and seek reassignment to get away from the judge who is mistreating you. You would need to confide in a director of workplace relations. They are there to assist law clerks and address their concerns. But as I'm saying these things, these involve some mechanism of reporting And it's weird. There are definitely some clerkship directors and deans who don't love me using the word reporting as if it's like, we're trying to keep this judiciary misbehavior secret. We should not talk about reporting. It is about sharing your experience in order to get yourself out of the bad situation and to hold the judge accountable for mistreatment. But it's really challenging. I mean, whether you are a state or federal clerk, the mechanisms to assess you just are not there. And if you do seek accountability. If you do seek reassignment, ultimately, there are no protections against the judge retaliating against you. So I think it's really about ensuring transparency on the front end. So fewer clerks are getting themselves into these bad situations. But I really think, I hope I'm empowering more clerks to stand up for themselves, to speak out, to say, no, that behavior is inappropriate. No, I'm not going to tolerate that. We have so messaged in the legal community this enormous premium on judicial clerkships as the necessary checkbox for the next legal job, but it is a job like any other, and legal employers should understand that, clerks should understand that, and you should not just endure mistreatment. That's the other message that gets sent to clerks from law schools is you should endure this mistreatment. It is worth it for the prestige. That is really trash messaging, so we should toss that out too.
0: Yeah. So much of what you say about the way we should run a court also applies to the law firm setting, right? Legal office setting. And I think I shared this with you last time we spoke, but one of the things that shocked me going from being a New York City public school teacher, y'all. Okay. So I just want to just highlight that because of the sheer lack of resources, just saying that should make you think about. New York City public school teacher. I had so much better training in leadership and management than I ever got in law school or in a legal setting. In fact, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn. That's not the point of this. I came into the law firm setting as a much better manager than anyone I encountered. (laughs) Like it's just knowing how to manage people, talk to people, get vision across, and it's not taught. And it's definitely not, like, innate. It's something you need to learn. And I know that you have thoughts about the management of these spaces as well. And I was wondering if you would elaborate on that.
2: Yeah. So there is a difference between being a good judge, a good jurist, and a good manager. And yet judges are tasked with running a small workplace. They are appointed or elected based on their judicial philosophy, and yet they are tasked with running a small workplace. So it is important for them to understand what it means to be a good manager, to be respectful, to respect diverse identities, to provide feedback in a constructive way. I worry that we have created a situation in which judges live in rarefied air. They never receive feedback. They never receive criticism. They are very disengaged from the day-to-day experience of being a judicial law clerk. And so it's really about conveying that judges are managers running a small workplace like any other, which also necessitates they should be subject to the same workplace laws like Title VII, and their employees should be protected by those laws like other workplaces. Exactly, because they're human and have lots of flaws, like all humans. I mean, the clerkship system is like a remedy from like 100 years ago or more back when you started your attorney career as an apprentice. That's what a clerk was. And as other legal jobs have standardized and increased transparency and gotten with the 21st century, we've retained clerkships as this unique position, and I don't think it should be. And I think it's particularly troublesome to continue to leave it that way when we message that so many students must clerk, and yet we don't provide them with any of the protections that would ensure a good clerkship experience. No, I mean, those are really valid points. And I think
0: even to backing up a little bit when you were just talking about how these folks are even unaware of the lived experiences within their workplace that they're managing. Let's just think about the Supreme Court right now. If they can't even connect with what's immediately in front of them, are they connecting to the reality of our society? The realities of lived experiences of people who are different from them, who are not, it's just, there's a huge disconnect. And to your point, there just aren't enough protections to make sure that the best people are suited for this or, and or, protecting and creating accountability when they're not, or when they do things that really should not be done. And so it, it really is an opportunity, I think. And what you're doing is so amazing, because I think it allows us to be honest about where we need to improve. There's this report that came out a few years ago about diversity in the industry that was I think it's the ABA that put it out. And the title of it is you can't change what you can't see. And what you're doing is allowing us to see what we need to change.
2: I think transparency benefits everybody. It obviously benefits law students. It benefits judges to help them identify good fits, positive working relationships. It benefits the legal profession because it helps us diversify. But I worry that a small handful of people are resisting my efforts toward transparency, thinking it dissuades some people from clerking. Well, yeah, we're shining transparency on the judges you shouldn't clerk for, But it should be a red flag about anybody who's saying that. You should ask yourself why your law school wouldn't want you to have more information about more judges. So I think those are really dangerous arguments pervaded by people who benefit from the lack of transparency. And look, the status quo benefits deans and clerkship directors. It does not benefit students.
0: That's absolutely right. And I I appreciate that you highlighted that is a red flag. And folks should be listening for cues from the folks who are giving them advice or they're asking for advice. And if someone is telling you to bury it under the rug, that should be a huge (laughs) red flag. Anyone who actually wants to take care of you or have your best interest in mind is not going to tell you to hide your suffering or they shouldn't, especially not with any other recourse to make sure that you are okay or getting justice for what you're experiencing.
2: And I definitely don't want it to seem like all law schools are part of the problem or everybody in the legal community is part of the problem. There is like a silent majority, maybe not so silent anymore, who is very supportive of the work I am doing. And that is fantastic. But we just need people to be out there saying it every day, supporting it, amplifying it. And I think some law schools want to make changes, but they don't want to be the first. They don't want to be the only one. And it's about conveying that the right thing to do is also good business because it encourages more students to clerk. It improves the profession. It makes for engaged and happy alums who continue to practice law. I mean, look, if WashU had invested in me on the front end a couple of years ago, I would still be practicing law. So...
0: Yeah, I said this last time, but I feel like we're cut from the same cloth.
4: (laughs) I'm like, we are just we're natural disruptors. So Aliza, talking about the Legal Accountability Project, you guys are working on something right now. I don't know if that's the best way to put it. I want to be able to direct people to your site and the survey. Can you talk a little bit about the survey and what it is you're looking for and how we can find it?
2: So the Legal Accountability Project has created a centralized clerkships database, innovative legal technology that democratizes information about judges and clerkships. So the students have as much information about as many judges as possible before they make what's clearly a really important career decision, considering the outsized influence that a clerkship and a relationship with a judge are going to have on your future career success. It is premised on my conversations with students and clerks. And I'll typically say, so you want a clerk or so you did clerk. How do you get information about judges? They go through a bunch of crazy ways. They try to Google and go on anonymous blogs for information. As we've discussed, there really is no good information about judges as managers and the clerkship experience right now. So our post-clerkship survey asks clerks a variety of questions Based on what they would have wanted to know before clerking. Judges as managers, the clerkship experience, mistreatment, tasks, work experience, hours, feedback provided, a whole variety of questions you might have before spending a year or two working for a judge. We are asking law schools that partner with us on this initiative to send our survey to their law clerk alumni. They create accounts, and then they submit a survey response anonymously if they choose. This centralized national database and the option to submit a survey anonymously just vastly increases the breadth and candor of information accessible to students considering a clerkship to clerkship advisors assisting them with the process. And then when this goes live in the fall, law schools will pay a subscription fee and their students get access to reading all the surveys. But so importantly, why this is better than anything law schools could ever do internally. Students don't just read their alum surveys. That is the existing model. You go to a well-resourced school, maybe you get some info about judges. You don't, you just won't. Rather, they read the surveys of everybody who is submitted into this national database. This is the best way to improve the clerkship experience for the next generation of attorneys and diversify the clerkship applicant pool because it is historically marginalized groups who disproportionately lack the information and the formal networks that are helping some of their peers get clerkships right now. So, if you are a current or former clerk, you can visit survey.legalaccountabilityproject.org to share your clerkship experience with LAP. And I've just been impressed with the word of mouth, like, way that this survey is getting shared. It is fantastic. We are filling out the clerkships database and it represents the full range of clerkship experiences. Because right now, if you submit a survey internally to your law school, the headwinds and pressure are such that it's going to be positive. We need it to be candid. We need it to be the full range of experiences. So that's what we're doing. I mean, it's like
0: Yelp for clerkships. So you think it's okay for us to be able to like Yelp tacos, but not judges. Like, of course, if we get Yelp tacos, we obviously should be able to find out information about judges. It's so, like clear. When you think about it, but until someone like you, (laughs) like points out that this doesn't exist and all the obstacles, like it would have never happened without someone stepping up. And that person was you. That person is me.
2: And I am so excited that this initiative has taken off and I've been just overwhelmed by the positive response, particularly from judges. We have a judge on our board. We have lots of judges reaching out to law schools to convey support, which is awesome. And this is the future of clerkship advising. This is the future of the legal profession. Transparency benefits nearly everybody. And it should be a red flag. The people it doesn't benefit are probably the ones committing misconduct.
3: I just want to throw in, I cannot imagine that you went into this just with zero hesitations and zero anxieties. You are shining a light. You're shining a light in an area that no one dared do before, right? So what advice do you have for anyone who might be wanting to do something similar to what you did? Shine a light and be an
2: innovator in a space. Definitely take the leap. If you have a good idea, if you identify an unmet need, just freaking do it. Like, absolutely. (laughs) No question. And the response, if you've identified that unmet need, the response will probably be positive. People will be like, why didn't this exist before? So simple advice, just do it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for everything
0: you're doing for all your insights for this work. We are so appreciative of being able to collaborate and partner with you. And I hope this is just the beginning. But before we go, let people know where to
2: find you. And any last words, feel free. Yeah, so people can visit our website, which is legalaccountabilityproject.org to learn more about us, join our mailing list, donate, We've talked about the survey link where people can share their clerkship experience. And then you should also, if you are a law student or an attorney, tell your law school to participate in the clerkship's database initiative. Law schools are considering this right now, and every school can and must be part of the solution. You can find me on Twitter at Aliza Schatzman or at The Lap, and on other social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. I post every single day about these issues, and so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about and amplify this work. And I, it's basically where you can find me in terms of concluding words. Look, these issues affect everybody, whether you clerked or not, whether you appear before judges or not, whether you are an attorney or not, the lack of accountability, the lack of diversity in the judiciary has implications for the future face of the legal profession for fairness in judicial decision-making. When, the legal profession, when the judiciary is homogenous, when it is white male judges writing opinions that are written in research by their white male clerks, there are implications for what the legal profession is gonna look like, for what judicial decision-making is gonna look like, let alone implications for the litigant to appear before judges who know that these judges are above the laws that they enforce and interpret. So increasing transparency, diversity, and accountability helps the entire profession. And it's good that we are finally starting to talk about these issues, but it can't just be talk. It has to be change. It has to be transformational progress.
0: And we haven't ended like in a better way ever. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you again.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you for listening to our conversation with Alisa Schatzman. And welcome back to Deep for the People, where we share some of our favorite articles, media, and podcasts that promote deep content.
4: Mary Ellen, can you kick us off? All right. So this week I am bringing you Radical Queer Witches. This is the queer, anti racist, trauma informed, social justice oriented answer to Cards Against Humanity. So this is a card game where each player gets a few different cards with different references on it. And the goal is to pair answer and question cards in the funniest, most provocative and cleverest way you can. The question card could be white people love blank. And then an answer could be the gender binary or upholding white supremacy. Then the person holding the question card chooses anonymously what the funniest answer is. And then that person wins. I've never pulled a bad card. Uh, And if you find a card offensive, you're probably on the wrong side of history. We have some additional rules in my household where we vote if someone wants to get rid of a card that they don't understand or they don't like. And then we talk about it. What makes you uncomfortable about it? What don't you understand? Let's break out the dictionaries and Google references that we're not sure about. It's a great conversation starter.
3: Mary Ellen, I love this. I want to play this with you.
4: Yes. I'll bring it to the office next
3: time. (laughs) Bring it to the office. And Angie, what do you have for us today? So I mentioned this in the episode. The movie's called Women Talking. It had a lot of Oscar buzz, was up for a lot of Oscars, up for a lot of awards in general. The movie's based off of a book called Women Talking by Miriam Toes. And she based her book off of real events that happened in a Mennonite village in South America, Bolivia. I was so moved by the movie. You know, I was raised to be a very independent thinker. My parents did a great job of not thinking that boys and girls are separate. This movie puts you in the mindset of women who have been submissive their entire lives. And now they are coming to the realization that they have to make a decision whether or not they're going to leave their community or stay. And the entire movie is just them talking. The entire plot is them talking. It's moving, it's amazing. I highly suggest it. Please go out there and watch it. It was worth all the Oscar buzz. And Tanya, why don't you wrap this up for us?
0: Thanks, Angie. So this time, I actually have um, I have content to share, obviously, but I also wanted to share a practice. So I know I'm super late to the game, um, but my husband and I recently binge watched Wednesday. Yes, that Wednesday. Wednesday Addams uh, in the show Wednesday on Netflix. And there's so many things to digest and talk about here. And one of the first things that stuck out to me and and to many other Latinx folks is that it was the first time we saw someone other than Gomez Adams actually um, speak about and own their Latinx heritage. Because I don't know if those of you who are familiar with the Adams family in the past, Gomez was seen to be like a Latino, in some ways would use Spanish words, They even had um, Latinx actors. But somehow that heritage never seemed to pass on to his children, um, which is not uncommon in some of these mainstream shows. But Wednesday was really exciting to folks like me because she owns that she is Mexican. She owns that she's a Latina and there are like phrases or references throughout the series where Wednesday's character acknowledges her Latinidad. Now, is it a perfect depiction and representation? Is it something that we want to write home about? I don't know. I mean, you'll be the judge of that. And so the practice that I want to share is something that I do often when I consume this kind of content. I look for what folks are saying about it. I read articles. I read how folks digest it, what they think is problematic, what they think is done well. And there was this amazing article written um, about Wednesday and her Latinidad on Refinery29. We'll we'll link the, the article to the post. And they make really, really good points, you know, for all the things I loved about the show and that were fun and entertaining, especially that dance girl That dance that Jenna uh, Ortega put together and she choreographed it herself, you will be seeing me at the next party doing that dance. I promise you. Um, But there are really problematic things. Like, for instance, they talk about how indigenous populations were affected by colonization, except they have not a single indigenous person in the show. Her ancestor, who's supposed to be a good settler, is blonde and blue-eyed and talks about how this land was disrupted for her. So there's a lot of issues for sure. And I think it's just a reminder that your faves can be problematic. And it's okay to still enjoy things and have a critical eye and train your mind and train yourself to see these things. And it's a way to kind of combat biases and think about changing your neural pathways to recognize those things so that you're better about it in other arenas in your life. So that's my contribution. I hope that folks um,
3: take a look at Wednesday and, and this Refinery article. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Please share your favorite deep content with us by sending your submissions to building Belonging at nycbar.org.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Building Belonging now has its own podcast feed, so if you want to hear more, please find us wherever you listen and subscribe. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at www.nycbar.org slash podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.